When I was in high school, I had a friend who would come over. He was a little bit older than I was, and we would play basketball a lot in, in our backyard. Uh, and at some point, this guy came to faith in Christ. And it wasn't for anything I did, but he came to faith in Christ. I believe it was through a, a campus ministry. I think it was a very charismatic campus ministry. And he was one of these people that you would say, if you ran into him, you would say, that guy's on fire for Christ. And I'm not sure quite how to describe it other than to say there were times that he was so on fire for Jesus, so to speak, that it made you feel a little bit uncomfortable. But you're like, I, I, he kind of needs to, to calm down a, a little bit. But there are other times where it just made you feel guilty, where you thought, man, I wish I loved people like he does and wanted other people to come to know Christ the way that he does. Uh, at some point, he raised money and, and went on staff with a ministry that I don't remember the name of, but what he wound up doing was literally walking around the country carrying a cross behind him, a cross over his shoulder, and, and I think they had some rollers on it to help him out. But, but his ministry would go from town to town, and he would be in parades or just walking through these towns with this cross on his shoulder. And Jesus did say, right? He said, take up your cross and follow me. Now, I'm not sure that's exactly what he had in mind, but there's no doubt that this guy was really sold out for Jesus. So that's what he thought of when he thought of following Jesus. So, so put that kind of on one end of the following Jesus continuum uh, the, the, uh, of what discipleship looks like. Now, come to many of our churches. What does discipleship look like in many of the churches that you have attended? Uh, often, what we tend to do is we take a more curriculum-based approach to discipleship. You sign people up for a course, you run them through it, and then voila, it's like you've got this ma magic ministry box, and if you'll just do this course and maybe follow up in another year and, and do it again, you'll be a disciple of Jesus. Now, I'd argue that has its own set of problems as well. So, so think about these two ends. We've got somebody literally leaving, walking around the country, carrying a cross on his shoulder, and then we've got showing up every once in a while for a class, hoping that's going to make me a mature disciple of Christ. Which one is right? Is one right? Is the other right? What should discipleship really look like at the end of the day? And is discipleship really important? We've got to get to that point where we just say, well, I don't know. I just, I'm kind of, it's, it's enough for me to get to church. And hopefully some of that's going to take uh, and, and I'll become more like Jesus. But discipleship in Scripture is really important. Jesus is going to say in this passage, follow me and, and I will make you fishers of men. Uh, author Mike Breen has said, if you set out to build a church, there is no guarantee you will make disciples. It is far more likely that you will create consumers who depend on the spiritual services that religious professionals provide. And he goes on to say that one of the buzzwords that we use today, and we use this here at Grace, is the word missional. We want to create missional churches, missional programs, missional small groups. But Breen thinks, he says, the, pro the, the, the reality is we don't have a missional problem or a leadership problem in the Western church. We have a discipleship problem. 
And he writes that if you know how to disciple people, you will always get mission. If you disciple people properly, he says, you will get mission. That will be one of the results of discipleship. If you know how to make disciples, he says, you'll reach people who don't know Jesus. Because that's simply what disciples do. That was Jesus' whole plan. Now, maybe you think that's a bit of an overstatement, but I think we need to hear what he's saying. He's not against mission. He's not against being outward facing. He's simply saying, if we actually go about discipleship in the right way, we should wind up with people who are outward facing. We should wind up with a congregation that is actually missional. And if we don't, then there's, there's something, there's a screw loose in our disciple-making process. So what I want us to, to think about as we look at this text this morning is, how did Jesus make disciples? How did Jesus make disciples? What did it look like in the life of Jesus? So, uh, Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 14 through 45. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? And you teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. 
Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, thank you that you've given us your word and that you've given us a day where we can gather and a location that we can gather in. Uh, Father, I, I pray that you would enable me now to preach your word clearly, that you would enable us uh, as a congregation to, to hear your word and to take it into our hearts uh, and to be changed by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So our, our question this morning is, how did Jesus make disciples? What did it look like when Jesus made disciples? Uh, and I want us to see four things in this really. He taught them. He called them to follow him. He modeled ministry and he prayed. And the result of all that was, was what he says in verse 17, that they became fishers of men. They became disciples of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at this kind of as we go through from two angles. How did Jesus make disciples? And what does that say about how I become a mature follower of Jesus Christ? How did he make disciples? And what does it say about how I become a mature follower of Jesus Christ? Number one, Jesus taught. This is very simple. Jesus taught. Verse 21, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Verse 38, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also because that's what I came to do. Did you ever stop and think about how much of Jesus' teaching the disciples were exposed to? Going with him from town to town to town. I mean, I can kind of see them like bumping each other going, that's the same sermon he preached in the last time. He's telling that illustration about fishing again. But they were, they were consistently exposed to Jesus' teaching over and over and over again. He talked. But it wasn't just any kind of teaching. Verse 22 says they were astonished at his teaching because he taught, taught them as one who had authority not as their scribes. Now, the scribes were well-respected people. They were experts in the law of God. Uh, they were teachers of the law of God. They were often called rabbis. But their teaching was often, it, it, was, it was heavily dependent on other authorities. Like, if, if every point I made, I said, like Tim Keller says, and you may say, well, you do do that. But, but if they said, well, every other point was like Tim Keller says, or like Sinclair Ferguson says, they, they were very dependent on other authorities. Uh, when they taught the scriptures, they would rightfully say, thus saith the Lord. But Jesus didn't do that. When Jesus taught the scriptures, he didn't say, thus saith the Lord. What Jesus would often say instead was, I say unto you. I say unto you. Another thing that Jesus was known to do is that he would start out when he was starting to teach. He would say at the beginning, uh, amen, amen, or in our translation, the King James Version, verily, verily, or in our more modern versions, truly I say to you. All right, this is what the elders would say at the end of a teaching service. Somebody stood up to teach, 
And if they thought what the what the person said was accurate in accordance with Scripture, they would say, "Amen, amen, that's correct." You kind of you see that in churches today where people say, "Amen, that's correct, that matches the Scripture." Jesus didn't wait for them to say that. He said that before he started teaching. Amen, amen. What I'm about to say to you is true, and you have no right to sit in judgment on what I'm about to say, whether it's consistent with the Word of God or not, because it is the Word of God. And so Jesus taught them, they saw very quickly, with authority. He had authority when he spoke to them. He's saying to them, I am the authoritative one. You don't have the right to sit in judgment over my teaching. So, what implication does that have if we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? It means I have to place myself under his teaching. Uh, where do we find it? We find it in the scriptures. So I have to place myself under the teaching of the scriptures and, and give heed to that. Uh, and I have to treat his word when I hear it taught, in as much as it is consistent with the, with the word of God, I have to treat that as authoritative. It's not just that I listen to the, to the teaching of the scriptures. I have to place myself under the authority of the scriptures, under the authority of the word of God, if I'm going to be his disciple. Now, that may sound simple, but that's actually a huge sticking point uh, in our culture. Uh, more than once I've had conversations with people who will essentially say something along the lines of, I'm a Christian, I'm just not going to give heed to Jesus' authority in this particular area of my life. I think that what I'm doing here, even though it may seem to be inconsistent with the scriptures, I think this is actually okay. And very often, to be honest, those conversations revolve around issues of sex or sexuality. I'm following Jesus, yes, but I'm not going to heed his authority in this particular area of my life. I think what I'm doing here is fine. You may have noticed the past week uh, that Cam Newton has been in the news. Anybody heard anything about Cam? I think he's been in the news a little bit this past week. Cam was a quarterback for the, or is a quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, and, and they sadly lost the Super Bowl. And he was a little upset about that in his press conference and kind of moped through the press conference and then walked out early, and the Internet exploded, and everybody's been giving him all kinds of grief about the way he handled himself in this press conference. The most interesting thing about this whole thing to me was what Cam said a couple of days later. Uh, they were interviewing him as he was cleaning out his locker to, to, to go home uh, in, in Charlotte. And this is what he said. I'm human. I've never once said that I was perfect. I've never proclaimed that I was perfect. But at the end of the day, people pick and do things of that sort. The truth of the matter is, who are, do you, who are you to say that your way is right? That's what I don't understand. We have all these people condemning and saying this, but what makes your way right? And then later he says it again. Before you are quick to assume anything, what makes your way right? Now, I think that's actually a brilliant question on his part to ask in our culture. Because we are constantly saying to people, you've got to make your own truth. That may be true for you, and that's fine, but it's not true for me. Something else is true for me. But then people betray the fact that they actually do believe in absolutes when somebody does something they don't approve of, and then everybody goes 
crazy about it. But how can you have grounds to criticize anybody if everybody's just making their own truth? If everybody's just charting their own way? And I think Cam kind of called everybody on it. You may not realize he was doing it. He's, he's just influenced by himself. He said, wait a minute, y'all. Don't we all get to make our own way here? So what makes your way of handling a press conference after losing the Super Bowl right, and what makes my way of handling a press conference after losing the Super Bowl wrong? Why is your way right and my way wrong? See, if you're going to criticize him, then what's your authority for doing that? What's your standard for evaluating his behavior? Or if you're going to defend him for what he did, what's your standard for evaluating what he did. Is there any external authority by which we can judge the conduct of anyone? Or are we just all kind of left to, well, I just, I just kind of don't like it. Why? I don't know. I'm just kind of just feeling like a, well, my gut doesn't feel that way. Or are we just kind of, are we just kind of left to that? And so Jesus comes into the midst of all this. And, and this is another way in which he is, is showing his divinity here. He essentially says, I am that authority. I am that standard. And he calls us and says, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to submit yourself to my authority. Um, if, if you're here and, and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I think this really is one of those things you have to wrestle with. What's the voice of authority in your life? On what basis and by what standard do you evaluate the actions of, of other people, do you say that certain things are right and certain things that wrong are wrong? While at the same time, you're saying, "Well, everybody just has to find their own truth." How are those things compatible? Uh, secondly, are you willing to have any authority outside of your own? Are you willing to submit to any authority higher than yourself? And then thirdly, I I'd encourage you to think about what your real issue with Jesus is. Could it be that you're simply not willing to come under his authority? Uh, someone once said there are two kinds of people in the world at the end of the day. There, there are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those who say, my will be done. And so coming to Jesus and being his disciple really is a matter of coming under his authority. If, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, are you consciously doing that? Are you, you bringing your life and your actions under the authority of Jesus Christ? Uh, will it rub you the wrong way sometimes? Yeah. But if it doesn't, you're probably really not paying attention to what he's actually saying to you in his word. So how did, how did Jesus make disciples? He taught, and he taught with authority. But secondly, he called people to follow him. Verse 17 and Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He called people to follow him. Now, I think there are two implications of this if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus. Number one, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, Jesus has to be your number one priority. He has to be the one first and foremost that you follow. Uh, notice in verse 18 when he calls, they, they immediately left their nets. Their, their occupation, and they followed him. Verse 20, uh, immediately he called them, and they left their father in the boat, and they followed him. Now, 
Not everyone whom Jesus called is called to literally leave your job or literally leave your family. In fact, if you keep reading the Gospels, you see that these guys, while they walked away from their fishing boats, they didn't just sell them completely. You'll see them back fishing again at other points. So not everyone is called to just say, all right, I'm, I'm done with this, and I'm going to do something different. But we are called to make Jesus a priority, our, our priority, the priority. Uh, we see in, 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 in the text here that Jesus comes before family. Now, that may not be as big a deal in our culture, but it was a big deal in that culture. But part of this that's a big deal in our culture is Jesus says, I've got to come before your job. You've got to put me before your career and, and your plans for your life. That's a bigger deal in our culture. Uh, for those of you who have watched the television series Hell on Wheels, I think me and the Wilcox is the only one watching it, but we're, we're carrying on. Um, Colin Bohannon is a, is a former Confederate soldier who's now helping to, to build the railroad across the western United States. And the railroad, he lost his family in the war, and, and the railroad is his, is his life. It's his thing. It, it's kind of all that, that he has. Uh, it, it becomes that so much that eventually he remarries, but he sends his wife and child away to live with their family because he can't take care of them and concentrate on working at the railroad at the same time. So he takes him back home so that he can focus on what he needs to do. And that goes on until somebody very close to him passes away. She dies, but right before she dies, she tells him, you need to go and be with your wife and your child. That's what's really important in life. And, and in that moment, everything changes for him. He's invented a steam shovel. He's, he's leading the way across the western United States. He's just been offered an ownership position in the company. And he walks in and he says, I, I quit. I'm done. I'm leaving. The, the, the railroad had, had been his God. It had ruled him. But in the words of his friend and in her death, he began to see that something else needed to take priority in his life. There are a lot of things for me, there are a lot of things for you that are like that railroad in his life. They're, they're the railroad in our lives. They're, they're the thing that takes priority and shapes us. Graduating with honors, success in our career, successful children, our standard of living, comfort and security. There, there are these things that they are the thing, they're the railroad in our lives. And if we say, I'm, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but these things come before him, then that's not really following him. If we say to Jesus, well, I'll follow you unless I have to cut corners in my business to make it successful. That's not really following Jesus, that's following success. If we say to Jesus, <clears throat> I'll follow you unless it gets in the way of me making money. Then that's not really following Jesus. That's following our pocketbook. Jesus says, follow me. I've got to have priority in your life. I've got to be your ultimate master. And, and, and that sounds hard to us, and it is hard to us, but we have to see that one who calls us to do that is also the one who will lay down his life for us. He's the only master, he's the only savior we have who actually gives up his life for us. The railroad wouldn't give up its life for Colin Bohannon. 
Your job won't give up its life for you. Your money's not going to do anything to try to help you. Jesus is the only master we can have. He's actually a gracious master who gives up his life for us. But the second thing I think we ought to notice from the fact that, they, that Jesus called them to actually follow him is the fact, and we miss this sometimes, but they literally followed him. Okay, they literally walked around with Jesus all the time and followed him everywhere he went. Now, what does that mean for us, all right? It, it's impossible for us to literally follow Jesus around Spartanburg every day. But I think it shows us that discipleship happens best when we actually have a relationship with the person who is discipling us that extends outside of the classroom. And I think, I think this shows us one of the shortcomings of what tends to be our default discipleship model. Uh, we, you know, we're just conveying information. But what this is telling us is that discipleship happens not just in the classroom, but in life. In real life. Um, hell on wheels again, if you'll indulge me this morning. Uh, there's, there's one point in one of the recent episodes where somebody's been shot and Colin Bohannon's trying to save him, and he's got a, a, a wound here, and he grabs a bunch of coffee grounds and packs in there to stop the bleeding. And then he runs and he grabs this guy that everybody calls Doc. He says, Doc, you've got to come help us. And the guy walks in there and he's like, what did you just do? He's like, well, I put coffee grounds in to stop the bleeding. That's what they taught us to do in the war. And the guy looked at him and he said, well, maybe that's why you lost. He said, you know, don't. Don't do that. And then, then he proceeds to go to work on the guy, but he admits eventually, you know, I'm, I'm not actually a doctor. I went to dental school for a couple of years and dropped out, but it got me a lot more respect for people to call me doctor. So he hadn't really been trained either, and they're sitting there trying to save this guy's life. We want doctors who not only have been to a year or two of medical school, but who have actually done rotations, and residencies and spent time like like Jared's not ready to go yet. Like we, we want to he's like, no, he, he's he's got a lot of book sense in his head right now. But we want him to go get some practical experience before he goes out. You, you learn to be a doctor by hanging around with real life doctors and observing what they're doing. I think we often cut discipleship off from that, from this apprenticeship apprenticeship component. We cut it off from relationship. All right, that's one of the reasons we talk so often at Grace about doing life together. Because discipleship and growth happens in real life, in ordinary life, uh, in the context of everyday life. Sometimes, and this may sound heretical to say, but sometimes you just pick stuff up about following Jesus from hanging around with other Christians, and you don't even really know how you pick that up. But you picked it up because you were being discipled by somebody, whether you realize you were being discipled or not. Parents, your kids, my kids, they're, they're picking up what we think it looks like to follow Jesus every day, whether we're self-consciously thinking about that or not. Every day in the way you respond to adversity. Every day in, in the way that you respond to criticism, to hardship. Every day in the, the way we respond to life we're discipling our children. They're actually, and your children are actually in the most intensive discipleship program they're ever going to be in their entire life. Is in their time with you. 
Um, I, I think in the church we we lose this so often. We think I just need to, to get more information in people's heads about Jesus, and if I can just teach them more facts, then they're gonna you know they're gonna do what they're supposed to do. Uh, as we you know we're gonna be electing elders this year. Uh, I would love for our elders not simply to be a board of directors, and and even not simply shepherds. Although that's a huge part of who they are. I would love to see our, our elders be more of a, a band of brothers who are actually doing life together, shepherding one another, loving one another, and then just being responsible for, for parts of the flock to do that with as well. Not just teaching about Jesus, but living out the Christian life with one another. Um, Build team. Those of you who are on our, our build team, uh, I've said that one of the things I want us to continue to think about is how do we how do we incorporate you guys who are college students? How do we connect you with families at Grace? Uh, I know, looking back to my time as a campus ministry, I think one of the most meaningful things for students was was not so much like this, all this great teaching, but was that they got connected to our family. Or they got connected to other families of the church. And that can be very shaping for you as a student. So it's a, it's a huge thing. And David and Becca and Haley are only three people. And you guys know how valuable it is just to get to spend time with them. I'd love for us to think as a church, how can we come alongside and aid in that part of discipleship? Um, this is also one of the reasons I would love for us as a church to send a group of folks down to Perimeter Church in Atlanta at some point. Uh, they've got a discipleship program there, and it is a program, so it does give me the hives a little bit. But, but it's called Life on Life Missional Discipleship. And so it highlights the way they're thinking about that. They realize that there's teaching involved. They also realize that uh, they need to be intentional, but they realize that discipleship happens in the context of relationships. So they're self-consciously trying to think through how do you put all of those things together in the culture that we live in. Well, just several thoughts there. Jesus teaches in order to make disciples, and Jesus calls people to follow him, to come into relationship with him in order for him to make disciples. And then thirdly, as they follow Jesus, Jesus models for them what, what, what following him looks like. He models what he's come to do. Uh, Mark 10.45 is probably the, the best summary verse of this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in the passage that we read today, we see the beginnings of this type of life that's going to continue all the way to the cross. Uh, you see him healing the sick, casting out demons, ha having compassion on these people who are hurting, and then a leper comes to him and says, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus' response, or the response in verse 41, Mark writes, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. I will be clean. Jesus came to help and to serve and to heal and to touch. Nobody... Nobody touched a leper. You didn't get close to a leper. And Jesus, he could have healed him without touching him, right? He had this ability. But Jesus chose to touch him and to heal him because he knew that as badly as this man needed healing, 
He knew that this man needed to know that somebody cared about him. That somebody would actually physically come into contact with him. That somebody would actually touch him. Now, I'll be honest, this one convicts me because, you know, it, it, I'm one of those people, like, if somebody in the room throws up, I'll tell you where the towels are. I will go get the towels for you, but I'm not the one diving down there to, to, to clean it up. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for somebody else to make that move first. Now, I know somebody's going to throw up now, but so, <laughs> hold it till you get home. Uh, but, 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 but Jesus came to serve, and he calls the disciples to serve. And that includes serving people that feel unclean to us. And I, I don't know who that is for you. Maybe that's sick people. Maybe that's people in a different socioeconomic group. Maybe that's people of a, a, a different race. Maybe that's people who just have a different outlook on life than you do. You know, there, there are these people that we feel happy to write a check to another organization to go and minister to them. We're happy to hand somebody else a towel to let them get involved. But don't make me get down there and get involved in the messiness myself. So keep your eyes open this week for the messy situations that God's putting in front of you. Where you want to run away, where it's safe and convenient and comfortable, and maybe throw a towel backwards over your shoulder as you get away. And ask, what would it look like for me actually to involve myself to, to touch this person who's not clean? Another way you can, another opportunity for us to do this, um, look for those things that God puts in your path. But there's also a group of churches uh, in Spartanburg who have been meeting and they're, they're planning a day. Um, it, it, the group is called Come Closer Spartanburg. And they're planning a day they're calling Love the City Day. And it's going to be on March 5th. And they're going to have different opportunities for people to come together and, and minister. There's going to be five different things. Uh, one of those is going to be an opportunity for you to go and make sandwiches and take them to homeless people and share food and the gospel with them. Another is going to be an informational meeting about the foster care situation in Spartanburg County and how you might be able to get involved in alleviating some of, some of the problems there. Uh, a third opportunity they're going to present is Mary H. Wright Elementary School needs 90 mentors. They're, they're looking for 90 mentors to, to come and spend time with first graders to try to get them up to first grade reading level. And so they're going to have an information and orientation meeting about that as well. So those are, those are very, you know, you know, if you're looking, you're like, yeah, I need to do something like that. There, there are tangible things you can get involved with, and we'll have more information about that. Over the coming weeks, it's going to be on, on March 5th. Making disciples, Jesus taught them. Jesus called them to follow him. Jesus modeled getting involved with broken and hurting people. And then the text tells us that Jesus prayed in verse 35. Now in the middle of all that, Jesus pulled away from all that. And Jesus prayed. And as, as Paul Miller likes to say, if Jesus needed to pray, I'm relatively certain that I might need to pray. Uh, if I'm going to follow him, I, I, I need to pray. Yeah, we've got a men's um, prayer group that meets on Thursday mornings uh, at 6.30. We're meeting at, at Wofford College. 
pray for, for grace, to pray for kingdom concerns, uh, to, to pray for the city of Spartanburg. Uh, we'd love for you to come out. We meet every Thursday morning at 6.30. I can tell you where at Wofford we're meeting. We're going to meet once a month at Papa's and do breakfast as well. If you'd rather, you'd rather get food first uh, to, to come hang out with us. We'd love for you to do that. I, I promise you it will be one of the, the high points of your week, even though it is very early uh, in the morning. Ministry teams, uh, when, when you're getting together and you're planning all this, I know from experience it's so easy to talk and to plan and to do and not pray about any of it. But Lord, what would you have us to do? Lord, as we do this, would you actually make this work? And to cry to him, are, are you praying in the context of your ministry teams? Are we using other opportunities when we gather corporately, small groups, Bible studies, do we see the opportunities we have there to pray? If, if Jesus needed to pray, if Jesus needed to spend time with his Father, to, to get away in order to do that, uh, I'm fairly certain we need to do that as well. Well, what was the result of all this? Teaching and modeling, living and caring and praying. The disciples themselves became fishers of men. I will make you become fishers of men. It's a process, but they learn ministry. They learn how to serve other people, even to the point of eventually giving up their own lives. Well, let me say this. Three things kind of in closing here. Uh, first of all, just to ask you the question, are you becoming a, a fisher of men? Are you becoming somebody who's engaged with ministry to people outside of your own circle? If not, I encourage you to kind of go back through the points of the sermon and kind of ask yourself, well, where's the breakdown in my life? Where's the breakdown? Am I, am I putting myself under Jesus' authority? Am I, am I following him? Um, and like I said, I can't literally follow him around. Am I being mentored by somebody more mature in the faith? Am I really following him or am I following something else? Am I trying to squeeze the life out of my job or something else instead of finding life in Jesus? Uh, it, again, it doesn't mean we all quit our jobs or that we all become the most bold evangelists in the world. But if we're following Jesus, there ought to be this increasing desire within us to become fishers of men, to want others to know this Savior that we know. Secondly, secondly, you may be saying to yourself, I want to want to do this. Like, I hear you. I want to want to be a fisher of men, but I just don't have the want to. And what I would say to you in that situation is to simply look at Jesus and what he came to do. And keep coming back to that gospel message. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then Jesus has given his life for you. And he calls you to believe that good news. This is good news. Jesus says to you, I came to desire, I came to die for people who are more concerned about money and jobs and success and cars and clothing and safety and security. I came to die for you. I love you. Believe me. Believe me when I say I came to die for that part of you too. Believe me when I tell you I love you and all your sin and all your insecurity and all your fear and all your awkwardness. And that I welcome you as my own. And the more you believe that, the more that gets inside of you, 
I think that more and more you'll actually want others to know that good news as well. And then lastly, last thing I'll say, if you're looking at yourself this morning and you're saying, well, I kind of get all this, and I know Jesus came for some people, but I'm too much of a mess for Jesus to want to have anything to do with. I've made too many mistakes. I've committed too many sins. You don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the things that have been done to me that, that can't be undone, that I'm so ashamed uh, I'm too broken, too unclean, too much like a leper. Hear Jesus' words again. Hear what Mark says about Jesus as he came to the leper. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. I will be clean. He can make you clean as well. He can make you clean as well. You, you know how quickly that snow melted on Friday? Much to all the children's disappointment. Like it was there and then it was just not there. Jesus can do the same thing with your sin and with your shame. You remove it from the record. And all you have to do is to come to him and ask him to do that. And he will make you clean. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, um, I pray that you'd help us to continually come to you and continually repent and continually believe the good news of the gospel that you came for unclean people. And Lord Jesus, as that happens in our life, I pray that that will begin to, to well up within us and create a desire to be fishers of men, uh, to create a desire to, to share this good news of the gospel with others. Uh, that scares us. We feel awkward at it, uh, awkward about it. Uh, but I pray that you would help us with it and you would stir us up and that we would be a church uh, that reaches uh, outside of ourselves and reaches people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen.